Hey everybody, this is Mitch Ashley. And Alan Schimmel. And you're listening to Security Boulevard Chat. Yeah, baby. All right, Mitch. So now it seems like a well-oiled machine. We're getting this down, you know. Get yeah, man. Dogs can le- learn new tricks. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's old dogs just relearning old tricks. Oh, that's true. Remembering tricks. You know, but it's like the land of 50 first dates. Every, you know, it's like every day's a new day. Every day's um, a new day. Groundhog Day. <laughs> yep. We learned it again. Anyway, so Mitch, uh, you know, as usual, a busy week in security. The, we've got our, our requisite reaches happening. Uh, in the tech world, our requisite security companies either doing layoffs, a lot of good friends at Cisco, mm-hmm. a lot of talented folks at Cisco got laid off uh, in the last week. Um, some of the public companies have, have lowered their uh, their guidance in terms of revenue. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a tough time. But, you know, there's also excitement building with RSA this year just a few months out. Uh, for those who don't know, you know, at our annual DevSecOps event at RSA seminar, I think is the official word. It's an all day event at, within RSA at Moscone Center. And it's on the Monday of RSA week, which this year's Monday, May 6th. We're going to be focusing in on, you know, DevSecOps in the, in the world of generative AI. Mm-hmm. And, and we've got some amazing speakers, right? David Brin, account acclaim you know multiple Hugo nebula award-winning sci-fi author uh phd nasa jpl fellow there uh also one of the you know preeminent futurists for the last 30 35 years in the world mm-hmm. um then we have you know CISOs and security senior security people from open ai deep google meta anthropic more and and of course you have a panel going on, but I think you know what we may lose sight of in the bright lights of all that is the very real question of inherently what's the relationship between security and AI here? Mm-hmm. Right? Is it is it a, a help? Yeah, is it a help? Is it a foe? Is it both? Is it is it everything to everyone all at once? I don't know. What, what do you think, Mitch? It, it seems like there's sort of two or three different threads. One is attackers and what they're going to do with AI. How does that aid them? And, as our th- and then the response is what in AI can help us both thwart that or prevent that, as well as other general security attacks. I think the second thread is um, automation, right? How, what can we do to help improve the SOC? What can we do to help improve incident response? Whether it's information that can be surfaced through generative AI or machine learning and other things in AI that might help us with, we've got all this data, all this traffic, all these attacks, you know, what can we learn from all of that? And then I think the third third one is sort of that biggest unknown is like, well, what aren't we thinking of that AI might be able to help us with that we're sort of, you know, current paradigms don't don't set us up to think initially about that, that are really innovative and kind of move the ball forward. Because I mean, you, you've heard me say before, security is kind of a funny thing that there's, we're still doing the stuff you and I did 23, four, five years ago. Those things are still there. And that the, the pace of innovation has, has happened, but we, I don't know, my sense is always like, we could be doing a lot more. How do we help that get, get done faster? Yeah. Maybe AI is part of helping that accelerate. 
I, I think it will be, and it should be. You know, I, I'm a binary kind of person. I don't know binary if that's star. really... Are you a binary star? Yeah, or <laughs> non-binary. I, I forget the whole... I always get confused. But anyway, <laughs> um, the way I look at it, Mitch, is I look at AI through two lens. One is, how can I use AI to help me get, you know, make better security mm -hmm. for lack of a better phrase yeah. to make the security better, right? AI is a tool I could use and there are some obvious applications of it that will allow me to do more, faster, better, cheaper, more efficiently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The evil twin of that is what do I need to do to secure against AI? So AI in the wrong hands or AI pointed in the wrong direction, mm -hmm. right? And, and what, you know, that's part of my job now. If I'm a security person, that's part of my job. How do I defend against AI-generated attacks or AI-aided attacks, enhanced attacks? And that's really scary mm -hmm. because... You know what? These bad guys have just as good, if not better, an imagination than the good guys do. And many times they have just as big a infrastructure and, you know, They're also uh, more resources. directly financially motivated, right? Than maybe yep. a day-to-day -day security engineer who's doing this for, you know, their passion or their belief in security. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, they're incentivized. The more they do, the more they make. Um, so... When I when I look at AI, it's you know unfortunately I think the answer is AI is going to do a little or a lot of both of those things. Mm -hmm. But I'd like it to do more to help than to hurt. Mm -hmm. um, I I think I think eventually it certainly will, but there's going to be there's going to be some AI and aided attacks. Excuse me. I think we already see it with phishing. Oh, absolutely. Right? The level of phishing has gotten much better. I look forward to see what software and services I paid for every day when I get these emails for the receipt, <laughs> you know, for Norton or for or or any other of these kind of things. Uh, the the uh, the Best Buy geek squads and mm -hmm. you know I get at least one or two of those a day. And where they used to be just they were so bad, they were funny. Now, it takes me time. I go and I look at who the email is from. Really, you know, I look in the header to see the email just to make sure it's really not from who it purports to be, mm -hmm. usually PayPal or something. Um, so I look, and I think, unfortunately, we're, we're, at, we're a lot closer to the beginning of this oh, yeah. Uh dilemma or maybe not dilemma to the beginning of this era than we are to the end of it yeah so, I, I, I keep thinking there's low-hanging fruit things that we can do like you know one of those i have i have the this bugs me list you know it's not very long but a few things that i see like so if on a web page it can validate your email address that it's a valid email address as you're typing it before you submit the form and all that kind of stuff why can't your email client validate the links in the emails that you're seeing so that they're really going to the best buy site and they're not some wonky thing 
that seems like pretty low hanging fruit. That be should be a great uh, application of AI. Maybe you don't even need AI to do that, but there are those kind of things. I think to your point about being at the beginning of this, uh, I think we're we're already seeing, but we're really heading into this big area of questioning everything, right? Is that a deep fake? Is that a not just an email, but is that a deep fake video? Is that a call mm -hmm. from Alan? Voice message is, you know, text, all of this stuff, I think is going to teach us to question everything. The problem is, will it also teach us not to trust anything? Are we going to end up in this era, this era where we don't believe anything because we just have no way of validating it? And that, that I think, is one of the, the kind of bigger dangers about security and AI. Thinking about security engineers, how do I know why I'm reacting on the right information? Right? I could, yeah, no, I, I agree. Look, this is, I think, a society-wide problem. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of people, they look at the the stuff that passes itself off as news today. You know, I think there's some element of people who just believe it because it reinforces their worldview. Yep. Yep. But I think there's a bigger group of people who don't believe anything because they think it's all nonsense. And that reinforces their worldview too, I guess. And then there's probably a small, small minority who say, you know, I'm going to validate it before I believe it or not. And and they dig in a little bit. But most people aren't doing that. And and it's, I think, a big problem in the world. I think it's tough to ask today. everybody to do that. Not everybody is inclined to, A, take the time more or less, kind of really dig into it and say, eh, maybe I don't want to do that. Agreed. Excuse me, Mitch. Um, agreed. I wanted to bring up another topic today, though. You know, we're going to be doing a uh, video interview today on Security Boulevard chat. And this is, I think it's the first time, well, since we relaunched this year, the the podcast, where we have a guest on. And it, it look, I'm not fooling anyone. It's not a live guest that we had joining Mitchell and I when we made this. It's actually uh, an interview I did with Chris Ang from Vericode this uh, past week for uh, TechStrong TV. Mm -hmm. And Mitch, you know Chris. We, we mm -hmm. know Chris Ang. Long time. 20-something <laughs> years, man. Yeah, you know, Chris was, well, Chris is the VP of Threat Research, but he's been at Vericode through all of its incarnations. I mm -hmm. think he might have been in that state guy even before Vericode. Mm -hmm. But, you know, at stake, if you remember, was acquired by Symantec, and then they I, kind of spun out or or the Chris's left there with some other folks. Going out <laughs> it was a long time ago, for sure. Chris Darby was the CEO there, and, of course, Chris has gone on to amazing things. Um, anyway, I had a chance to catch up with Chris. You know, every year, Verico does their state of software security, SOSS. And what they do is it's not a survey, it's not interviewing, but they take all of the data that they see or pass through, anonymized, obviously, mm -hmm. to protect the innocent. And they and they they draw trends out of it. And they don't even do it. Here's an interesting thing I was reminded of in talking to Chris. They actually deploy uh, a data scientist firm. I want to say Cytera or something like that. Chris mentions the name in the interview. Um, this is a data science firm that specializes in cyber. 
And so they're the ones who are really kind of crunching the numbers and, and coming up with the trends that make their way onto the front pages of this report. Um, this year's report, like the biggest thing that they saw was security debt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I was, I spoke about this with Chris. It's, it's actually ironic that I was the one interviewing him with this because, you know, so much of in the early DevOps days was about technical debt. Technical debt. It's all we right? How much? Yeah. Yep. I mean, how much technical debt do most organizations who have been doing waterfall or have been kicking the can down the road accumulated to the point where it was suffocating them, but it was so suffocating that they really almost didn't have an out Mm -hmm. without really biting the bullet with some catastrophic potential. Um, And I guess I just never thought about it until Chris and this report came out. But it's the same thing with regard to security. This is a monster of a thing. Absolutely. And there's also maybe a connection. I'm, I'm curious to see in this interview when we watch it of some of that security debt comes from software debt, application debt, right? You're not updating this software. It's not, you know, not able to keep pace with change and updating open source you know, vulnerabilities. It might be in your own software applications and stuff. That also contributes to that security debt as well as the workload and the backlog of security work that creates that debt. Yep. Agreed. 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 Anyway, you know, Veracode in in this state of software security has taken security debt as the star of this year's uh, report. And, And they've drawn out some really good data there that gives you some really good insight. So if it's okay, let's, let's run this video of the interview with Chris and we'll be right back. Hi, everyone. Welcome back here to TechStrong TV. Um, I'm happy to have a good friend of mine back with us uh, here to discuss the latest research from our friends at Vericode. He's Chris Eng. Chris is the chief research officer at Vericode and has been for a long time. I I know Chris probably longer than either of us want to admit. Uh, Chris, welcome. Welcome back. How are you, my friend? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Good. It's good to have you here. Um, so, Chris, I look, I think most of our audience is very familiar with Vericode. They're one of the pioneers in the AppSec market. And, you know, and I, as I mentioned, you and I know each other back, I think, from the at-stake days through all the various iterations of Vericode and yeah. corporate overlords and all that good stuff. But in, in, in case... I don't know, maybe someone out here is new or they don't know Vericode. Why don't you, how would you describe Vericode to them? Yeah, well, we're a software security company and we're trying to, I mean, we help our customers with software security at every stage of the life cycle. So everything from like the educational aspect for the developer through fixing, uh, detecting and fixing issues as you're coding to doing static, dynamic and software composition scanning as you're getting ready to deploy, uh, penetration testing after that. So everything you can think of sort of in the in the SDLC, you know, we've always talked about integrating security at every stage, right? And so we're all about doing that in an automated way at scale. Um, and, it's, and it's taken a long time to get there, but it's, uh, I think the industry is realizing that you can't just, you know, you can't just think about this later. You've got to integrate it at, at every possible stage. 
I get it. Absolutely. And, and, and of course, you're being very modest, but, you know, Vericode is not just a software security company. You guys have really uh, helped set the trail, if you will, or cleared the trail or made the trail, especially around application security, AppSec, and, and stuff like that. Um, and this is going back, I guess, has Vericode been around 20 years? Is that fair, Chris, around that? Not quite, but we're getting pretty close. It was, it was yeah, 2006. Yeah, it's got to be. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, yeah, I was going mean, to say 2005, yeah. something like that it was. The whole, I mean, yeah, the whole motivation you know, for me coming over was like I was sitting there doing pen, uh, penetration tests for customers, one off, you know, two weeks at a time. And you know, that just doesn't scale. Uh, and so when you start thinking about what does scale, how do you take you know, the increasing amount of software that's being written by every company out there and, and scale that into a real program with process and tooling around it where you can, you know, test your software and, and make security testing, you know, as ingrained as quality testing or, or, or all the other things that you have to do to produce software. The only way to do that was to bring automation to it. And, uh, and, and the, the thing for us in 2006 was like, well, let's put it in the cloud. Um, we didn't have that word yet, but, um, yeah. you know, let's, let's, let's put it in the cloud and, and get out of this, this mentality where you, you've got to give people this, you know, the this, this software to install and maintain and have computers for, and let's just, you know, let them upload stuff and we'll, we'll handle that part of it. And, and that was what's really allowed a lot of big programs to scale over the years. And then we get a lot of great data out of that, which is kind of, you know, how we ended up writing this. This report. You're right. The, by, uh, the byproduct of which is the state of software security report every year, right? Right. Like you can taking see, a lot of that data. Yeah. You see what's happening, right? Across different industries, different languages. Um, are things getting better or worse? Where are the concentrations of, of you know, bad news and good news? And um, you know, first you know, 2010, we we thought like, well, let's let's put something out there for the industry. <laughs> the report had a data set of 1500 applications, which was, we we're like, wow, 1500 applications. Like that's huge. Uh, this year's report has a million. So, yeah, so just uh, a little so, bit different, a, a little, little bit, bit more scale. And you can learn so much by just like number crunching that data and, you know, starting to, to, to ask some probing questions of like what's happening out there. Of course we do that hand in hand with, with uh, our friends over at Scientia, who have the you know the data science, security data science background, to be able to, be able to really um, to dig into some of the complicated things that we want to do. So it's it's been a really cool journey um, getting getting to do this every year and and having like I said, an increasing amount of like really rich application security data every year. No doubt about it, Chris. Before we dive into some of the nuggets from this year. The report is available now. If people go to vericode.com, they can download the, That's right, the report. Yeah. Vericode.com slash SOSS, which stands for State of Software Security. I mean, you can get there from the front page also. But yeah, they can read it. Um, yeah, we released it actually um, just a few days ago. Fantastic. Fresh off the press. All presses. right. So, Chris, let, let's start with, you know, what are the big what are the big insights from this year's report? So this year, what we chose to focus on was security debt. Um, and you're hearing a lot about security debt lately, I think, in, in, in conversations, just in terms of what's piling up, you know, and how difficult is it to kind of get on top of that? 
Um, security debt as a concept, I think I always like to compare it to, to credit card debt or, or any sort of financial debt, right? Where um, if you accrue it and you don't pay it down, uh, it gets more expensive to fix later, right? Dude, you know, in finance world, it's interest. In 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 software world, it's just sort of the complexity of software and the you know crusty old code and things like that. Um, and technically, I think you know anything that you any flaw um, or vulnerability that you know about in your software that you choose not to fix once you know about it, that becomes security debt, right? You've decided to defer it um, for the purposes of this report because we're doing calculations and whatnot, we're defining security debt as anything that you know about and haven't fixed for um, at least a year. So that's a pretty, like, that's an ample amount of time, right? So it's kind of fair to say, like, yeah, you've let it slide into, into debt at that time. And so what we find is security debt is all over the place. It's endemic. It affects every application, uh, every industry, every language, um, size of application, size of company, doesn't really matter. Um, and 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 you just kind of find find it um, everywhere, um, and you find that seventy one percent of organizations have security debt. Um, about forty five, close to half of of organizations have what we call critical security debt, which is flaws and vulnerabilities that are of a you know a high or critical severity that you've let slide past that time. So it's it's pretty bad. Companies are letting this pile up, and um, you know, over time, that that really really accumulates. Sure. Um, you know, to me, security debt is like dark matter, right? It may make up eighty percent of the universe, but we can't see it, smell it, touch it, but we see its presence based upon like its gravitational pull, right, on regular matter or whatever. So, you know, in my mind, security debt has a similar kind of thing. Because it's there, we may choose to ignore it. And many organizations kind of bury their head in the sand around it. But nevertheless, the gravitational pull of it prevents us or slows us down from doing things that we know we need to do. Right? And and I think... In the case of security debt, it's almost sort of a ticking time bomb, too, though, because sooner or later, those chickens come home to roost, as, as the saying goes, right? And, and someone's got to pay the price. Um, that's yeah, that's exactly right. Um, you don't I mean, it, nobody like most people would rather go and write a cool new feature, right, than go and, and fix some security issues. And on a day to day basis, you don't you don't feel the security debt there unless, you know, unless you've got, you know, a security team pounding at your door or something, but, you know, you really feel it when there ends up being a large industry impacting event, like, um, you know, like a heart bleed or a, a log for J or something along those lines. And that's where the security debt really comes back to bite you because if you've allowed yourself to kind of get that far out of whack, like with a with a with an open source library, for example. If I'm up to date, if I'm only you know a month out of date, and some big vulnerability comes out, it's actually very quick for me to just go patch that with the with the fixed code. Nothing's going to break. It's a really easy fix. If I'm five years out of date, imagine I I can't just jump to the latest version, right? right? I have to kind of 
go step by step, um, you know, go from five years out of date to four years out of date, take the next major version, make sure that nothing broke as a result, because I'm making such big changes to the code. When you can make yeah. small changes at a more frequent basis, um, you, 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 you lower the chance that you're going to break anything. And that applies to pretty much any security fix that you're going to make. I think the longer that you let it go. And also if it's current, if it's recent in your memory, if you're working, if you just fix it, when you find out about it, you're already working on that code, right? As a developer, you don't have to go unearth it from some branch from a year ago and figure out what, what was I doing at that time? And what, what does this code actually do? And kind of get back into that mindset. You're already working on it, but it's a, it's a muscle. Right. Yeah, and it's muscle memory. I, uh, you know, so started doing DevOps.com about 10 years ago, right? And look, the whole technical debt thing was was a big issue that DevOps was helping to address, right? Is right. a lot of organizations just kind of kicked the can down the road. Yeah. And, and, and like you said, eventually it becomes such a big hurdle to get up to speed, to get up to par that you just can't do it in one fell swoop. Now it takes time and more effort. And it, it, it's not that any one little thing is fatal. It's the totality of it, right? Yeah. That really weighs in, you know, as I said, it's like dark matter. It starts... You know, it starts morphing and pulling and pulling at the the the, the fabric of your of your stuff. Um, so what what's the answer here, though? Yeah, there are there are some things that that can be done, um, and one of the areas that we spent a little time investigating once we kind of looked at the the nature of the debt and the volume of the debt is what are application teams actually what kind of what kind of effort are they actually putting against this and so if you think about for example what's my average monthly fix rate like if i have 100 flaws in any any given month how many of those flaws am i actually fixing within that time frame like what is my capacity as a team and so we've defined capacity in that way what's your what percentage of the known vulnerabilities you have are you actually getting after month over month Obviously, you want to be fixing faster than you're creating them. Otherwise, you you get into more debt. But what you find is that most teams are not dedicating a lot of capacity to this. Um, about two thirds of them are are dedicating like three percent capacity. Um, I think uh, if uh, you know, th there's there's a there's a, a chart in the in the report that kind of shows what that looks like. But it's a small. It's like we're talking single digit percentages a lot of the times. And so, okay. That's, I mean, not ideal from a security perspective, but you're balancing a lot of things, right? You're balancing new features. You're you're balancing non-functional requirements, uh, other tech debt, right? You, you you keep you're keeping your stack up to date. All these other things that you have to do as a software developer. So let's just say that your capacity is what it is. Let's say you don't, you can't change that, even though that you you can, but it's a business decision and it's a lot more complicated than that. So given the past capacity that you do have, are you as a team using that capacity in the best possible, most efficient way, right? Am I getting after the highest risk items, knocking those off at least? And it turns out that largely um, they are not, teams are not. So you would expect that 
you'd work on the most critical issues first. And once you kind of got through all those, you'd work on the, the medium severities and the lows. Um, but when you look at a plot of the, the sort of the lifetime of those types of issues, you, you find that they're all being addressed at roughly the same rate. You see there's a chart that has these lines and they overlap because um, there does not seem to be a prioritization there. And so that's one thing that's, that's actually really easy to get after is, is prioritize the security work a little bit better. Um, because if you have only got a certain amount of time to work with, uh, you really should be spending on the things that present the most risk to the business, not you know what you know what you just feel like working on. Uh, and we can't really tell why it is that that developers are choosing to fix the lower severity items first sometimes. Um, I think I think a lot of it just has to do with convenience. Um, I'll fix what's in front of me right now uh, because it's there, which, you know, hard to fault that or or I'm going to fix this because it's the most recent thing that popped up in a scan. And so, like, it's fresh and I'm just going to go after that one. But in order to really get after this from a security perspective, you've got to you've got to you've got to kind of level it up a little bit and be thinking about how does the overall bucket of flaws that I know about affect the risk posture and 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 go at it in a more prioritized fashion. The other thing you can do other than increasing capacity is is just um, um, getting better at, uh, at at fixing the flaws themselves, right? If I can, for example, if I can learn how to fix a SQL injection problem in five minutes instead of 30 minutes, I'm just making those numbers up, it takes a little longer probably, but um, then I've effectively increased my capacity um, because now I can tackle six times more in the same amount of time. And so getting better, whether that's through education, whether that's through sort of generative AI-assisted type fixing, uh, any ways that we can make ourselves better at the task at hand um, effectively increases our capacity um, and allows us to chip away at more of the debt. So those, those are so those are some things that teams can do. Absolutely. Like any debt, whether it's credit card debt, technical debt, or or security debt, kicking the can down the road is just never a, a great solution. And, um, you know, it's easy for me to say, and, you know, but when people find themselves in this state, it's kind of usually too late for that, but you got to start somewhere. And, and, you know, there's no better day than today. Chris, beyond technical debt, I'm excuse me, beyond security debt, what other kind of big, you know, highlights from the report this year? That that is the that is the bulk of it because it's such a okay. big it's such a big problem, and we we slice the data a lot of different ways, um, and and kind of look at what's happening uh, and and the factors that that that, it, that affect that. Um, we do have a, another section, uh, a section at the end of the report that kind of follows on some open source research that we that we did last time. We started looking at what's what what was on GitHub and some of the characteristics that we thought might, you know, uh, lead to more risk. For example, this this was last time, so we looked at repositories and how often they were updated, or um, how many developers were on them, um, those those types of things. And we we pushed a little bit more into that direction this year, asking questions like, how how much risk uh, do you get out of using open source when you know 
there's only a single developer or like if you look at the percentage of applications in a particular language that are using code from a single developer right there's a lot of libraries out there that are very popular that have one maintainer and so what is what does that risk look like when you think about that and in, in in terms of the organization, if if they introduce a bug, if their account is taken over, if they decide to disband the project, like those those types of things, um, and then we looked at OpenSSF, which I'm sure you you probably come across it at some point, but just sort of industry um, work to kind of do many things, but they have a, this notion of a score that they put on um, open source libraries that looks at a, a number of different factors to gauge sort of how secure that library is. And it's more about practices than vulnerability counting, right? It's are they using, um, are there signs of dangerous coding patterns? Do they use branch protection? Are there, do they use code reviews? Do they use SAS scans? All these things that you, it's kind of almost like a maturity model type thing, right? And so we looked at the scores of, uh, of open source libraries that they've assigned scores to. And then we've looked at open source libraries that we see actually in use in real um real world applications from our customer base and we actually saw that um the libraries that we saw in use tended to have on the higher side of open ssf scores now i'm not saying that people are using the open ssf score to decide what they want to use um but there does seem to be a correlation there that people are leaning towards the the libraries that have better practices um and so that was the sort of a good sign it was we this, there's a lot of data there, right? Um, but we wanted to to kind of see what that was that was looking like. So there's a whole section there on open source, what that looks like in the ecosystem, how you know the the the, the influence that individual developers have and uh, and stuff like that. So um, worth the read. But um, yeah, our focus was really let's get into this security debt discussion that nobody wants to have, and um, and and let's have it. And and honestly, um, I saw. Um, Ollie Whitehouse over at the uh, at the, the UK. Um, uh, 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 I'm forgetting the acronym now, right? But it's their it's their CISA basically. And he was mm -hmm. saying like one of the top priorities for the year, as he's concerned, is like getting the security debt um, conversation happening and figure out ways to get after that because it's just this looming this looming problem that comes yeah. back to bite us every time you know every time uh, uh, something big happens in the industry. So. It's a conversation needs to happen. Yep. I, and I think it's a topic that we are going to see throughout the year. I hope to see some of it maybe at RSA, where I usually see you. I usually and, see you, yeah. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and hopefully we'll see you there. Um, again, for folks who want to uh, download the report, you could go to vericode.com slash S-O-S-S and get it right from there. Or just at vericode.com. I'm sure there'll be links yeah, on the yeah. front page. You'll, you'll find it. Yep. Hey, Chris, as always, thanks for coming on and, and talking it up and, and informing us, enlightening us. Best of luck and uh, come back. Well, if I if I don't talk to you before, I'll see you in May, but maybe before. That sounds great. Thanks for the chat. Always a good conversation. All right. Chris Yang, Chief Research Officer at Vericode here on TechStrong TV. Tell you one thing. You know, Mitchell, I have less hair than I did 20 years ago. Yours is much more gray. But even Chris Eng has gone gray on us. Yes. You know, we just hang around too much together for too yeah, long. Yeah, it just, it, know. you know, it makes you realize, Mitch, the, you know, here's to us and those like us. Damn few left. Yeah. Um, we're, we're but Chris hanging is on. Definitely, 
Yeah, but Chris is definitely one of them. And look, he does a great job there at at, at Veracote, as does Chris Weisfeld. I mean, it's a, still a great company. And they've a been, lot of people follow that. I mean, that report's yeah. important. I mean, look, they've been setting the mark in the AppSec, I think, as long as there's been an AppSec. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. So, and, that, and I'm lucky. I mean, whenever they have some kind of news like that, Chris, I guess, tells the PR people or whatever to reach out to me. Mm -hmm. And him and I get together to discuss it. So I, I probably interview Chris three or four times a year, and I usually see him at RSA or Black Hat. Yep. And um, as a matter of fact, we made plans. We'll see him at RSA again this year. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Good no, stuff. He's, and he's, he's just well, he's talking about real things, real data, right, and the analysis from it. So that's what it's not just pontificating about what we think is happening. It's, no. I mean, the thing about Chris saying is this is a real deal security guy who's now been doing the research of Vericode for a very long time. And so it's not it's not your average analyst, right, who is riding that gravy chain. Not no no disrespect, Mitchell. Hey, none none taken. All right. <laughs> I try but, you know, yes. <laughs> he he's a he's a real security guy. So really uh really really happy with that well this anyway great i appreciate you bringing that interview forward so folks could uh listen yeah watch. no and, and if you want to see it again it, it it's available on tech strong tv as is mitchell these podcasts you know if you're listening to it on apple or watching it or on spotify or wherever you can catch it there you can also catch it on our tech strong tv youtube channel as well as on techstrong.tv as well. So there's no there's no lack of outlets to, to watch your favorite podcast here on TechStrong. Every part of our you know, global takeover plan. <laughs> Omniversal. Anyway, Mitchell, thanks for uh, having me on Security Boulevard Chats and joining me this week. We'll be back next week with more. Yep, and uh, you've been listening to Security Boulevard Chats next time.